So we are in a series, if you're um, new here this morning, visiting with us, we're in a series we are calling Blank Screen. We're calling Love Hate, it'll be up there in a second. Um, love Hate, and uh, I, I, want, I want that to immediately strike you. I, it has, we've already gotten some pushback because it, it sounds uh, harsh, the word hate has uh, negative connotations, and uh, we don't like to think of God negatively. We don't like to think of God as, as, as hating anything. Uh, but I was reading uh, in Ecclesiastes last night, which is probably not a book we read a whole lot of, but is really a great book. And the ending of the book is really, really awesome and kind of highlights the whole spirit of this series. Uh, it says this, the, the preacher, as the, the author calls himself, says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We are a bizarre group of people for many reasons, and this is one of them, that we really believe that there is a God and we really believe that he tells us what is right and what is wrong. And we believe that when the Bible says God hates X, whatever X might be, or X is uh, abhorrent, we believe that the Bible is intentionally revealing to us Something true about God. And if the Bible isn't revealing something true to us about God, then it's really just up to you to whatever you think is true about God. And we just kind of rush headlong uh, into what you think versus what I think, and we just kind of go on. So the heart of this, of this sermon series is this. We believe the Bible reveals to us truth about God. And whoever who has ears to hear, let them hear. This is a two-part sermon inside of a much larger sermon. Uh, last week, we engaged the love portion of God. So what it is that God holds up as the ideal, what it is that God loves, what it is that God calls us to, that's what we talked about. This week, we're talking about what God hates, which, of course, is immediately going to strike us as uncomfortable in our day and age, because we don't talk like that. Um, and so it's important if, if you find this sermon to be excessively negative, it is because it needs to be seen in the larger context of both of those sermons, last week and this week. Uh, because the problem is that frequently we are hearing from various segments of the church, which is my major concern, why I'm even talking about this, from people who call themselves Christians, well, God doesn't really mean this. Or the Bible doesn't really say this. Or the word doesn't really mean this. And I want to tackle those claims this morning. Because last week, if you'll remember, my argument was this. The Bible doesn't need to. If you expect the Bible to write down Moses or John or Paul to write down a list of all of the different ways that we as people will be creative in sinning, 
the Bible would be unmanageable. We are incredibly... Think about the many ways that we have come up with to kill one another. If we channel just a fifth of that energy into how to heal one another, what would we have cured by this time? But we're ever-increasing in our creativity on destroying, desecrating, and defiling. And all of that money and all of that power. So, my point is this. From last week and bringing it forward into this week, God is very specific in telling us what he is for. Giving us a picture of what the glory of God looks like within our marriage and sexual relationships. That being particularly marriage between a man and a woman and singleness in celibacy. Both of these as we talked about last week. The Bible frequently talks about abominations, uses that word, uses very harsh language, language that we would find to be very, not PC, as it were. The Bible isn't really that concerned with this because the Bible is concerned at many points of doing this, of teaching us to fear God and to keep his commandments. And it's important that we as the church, even if we're the last bastion of it, are the people who still declare God's commandments. There's this great passage that I thought of. I thought of. I didn't didn't think of. You know what I mean. From from 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is patient. I love that line. Because at any point in my life, and there's been a whole lot of them, God could have said, you know what, Jordan, I am done. And just flicked me off the map, brought me to his judgment throne, condemned me to hell because I was walking in disobedience. But God is patient. And he's patient for a very specific reason. He's patient because he desires that everyone would hear his word, would come to him, would receive his forgiveness, would fear him and keep his commandments. And this isn't just because God is is God and he can do whatever he wants, but because he has designed the world to run a certain way. And he reveals that way in his word so that we can live the best lives possible. But the best life possible is only possible when it's lived within the guidance of God. There's vast confusion in the church today over the topic, especially of the LGBT issue but we'll talk about more than that this morning. I want to highlight two things that, that stand out to me as important, um, and that is this. This is a website um, whose entire job, their entire existence is built around this, getting you to go to their conference so that they can convince you to be inclusive so that you can come back to this church and you can begin an uprising within the church. This is specifically stated by the founder. So you can create an uprising in your church and your church will become inclusive so we have two voices uh and here's a great little new york times article in which you have two voices this is the founder of the the thing i just said before two voices one voice holding up what we might call an orthodox position what the church has held for two thousand years and the jews two thousand years before that and what we might call a progressive position a position that says no the bible doesn't really say that or the bible doesn't really mean that or this isn't exactly what the bible is thinking of when it talks about that 
And so there is confusion on this, and I understand why there's confusion on it, because you have two voices that are coming at you. And now you've got a third, <laughs> for whatever that's worth. But I, I take very seriously the claims And I want to be very honest and very serious with the claims. And so I want to look at uh, the four texts that are are centrally the texts that are in question. And I'm going to give them to you as much as I can. Uh, So I'll give you the page numbers here. I'll be looking specifically at 939, uh, which is Romans chapter 1. And then we'll we'll, we'll kind of take a, a quick sidebar over here to Leviticus, though I won't read all of that specifically, but I wanted to give that to you so you can, t- so you can look at that. And these are, of course, the page numbers within the, the Pew Bible, which is what I'm using. So if that's, if that's helpful to you in finding those passages. Now, Romans 1 needs to be taken in toto. You kind of have to recognize the argument that is being set up, and I want to walk quickly through that. So I'm not going to read the entire passages to you, but... You know, I want you to be able to recognize what Paul is doing. Paul, in, in Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, is laying out the lordship of Jesus Christ within the context of the Jewish scriptures. This is imperative that you understand this. Jesus was a Jew, right? That's why all those Nazis who are carrying crosses are bananas for various reasons, but that is especially bananas because Jesus was a Jew, and his whole, his whole tradition is rooted in God calling him from God's holy people, which was the Jewish people. And so, so, so Paul locates Jesus as the son of David, which is to say he is of the line of the kingship of David. He is the rightful king of the Jews. Not only that, but he is resurrected from the dead. He is the Lord of all. He is the son of God. And so he's locating Jesus in his authority over all things. He then locates himself in the story of Jesus. He says in verses 8 through 15 that that my desire, because I am called by God to spread the gospel, is to come and visit you. He wants to visit Rome. He's never been there. And he's writing them this letter. He says, I want to visit you so I can proclaim the gospel, can proclaim the gospel to you. In verses 16 and 17, these are kind of really important, probably famous words if you've been to Sunday school. Maybe you maybe you had to memorize them as a kid in VBS or camp or something like that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for what? Salvation. Which implies what? You need saving, right? Not just you, but me and and everyone else. Everyone's going to need saving. And and Paul and the rest of this exercise, especially in the first three chapters, are going to be this. He is going to see that everyone sees that they need saving. Everyone has to understand you are a sinner for, in whatever line of sin that you choose, whatever line of sin that you, you sort of are drawn to, all of us need saving, and the power of God is able to do it. The power of Jesus is able to do it. Then he breaks into specifically looking at the non-Jews. So we call them Gentiles or Greeks, those words are used, but it essentially means everybody who is not Jewish in his audience He refers to them, and he says in verse 18, so here you can kind of look directly at the scriptures, and I'll read this. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is an important, an important line because it reveals fundamentally what Paul is after, and that is this. No one likes being told you're wrong. Right? You're wrong. Nobody likes that. Everyone resists that. 
In fact, when God comes to me most often and begins to convict my heart, I almost always, even after all this time, I mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Even after all this time, I'm like, ah, maybe that's not God's voice, or maybe, maybe it's not that bad. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with God all the time as he continues to show me new places where I'm, I need to be better. I can follow him more fully. I can live life more in line with his keeping, with his teachings. We, re, we suppress the truth. We don't want to hear it. We reject it in favor of those things which we do like. Those favor, in favor of those things which are, are, are in keeping with what we already believe. Uh, Facebook is like the living, breathing proof of this, right? We don't like hearing things that we disagree with, and so we argue irrationally, usually. So Paul says, that what has happened is the wrath of God is being unveiled against all of these non-Jews because in their, in their lives, they have fundamentally rejected God and they have begun to worship created things. Now, obviously, you, your, your neighbors and friends, maybe if, you, maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning, I don't know any non-Christians who have a big idol of Aphrodite in their backyard or something like that, right? I mean, that's, that's not something we do. And so we might look at this and say, well, this doesn't apply to today because nobody's doing that. No, you're missing the point. I, I, I've driven to Lansing like 70 times this week. Not that many times, but a, a, a few. Almost every billboard you pass has a lady on it selling you something, right? Everything from, from beer to... To what? Cars. Yes, thank you. I mean, we, we, we use, is there anything fundamentally different between an idol of Aphrodite and a billboard like that? No. It reveals to us the way in which we use sex to sell things. That we are still propping up idols all over the place and they reveal to us our priorities and they reveal to us our passions and they reveal to us the things that we desire and frequently, if not always, they are against God and against what God is after. And so what happens as we continue to reject God, we have to put something in the place of God. If you ever listen to a scientist who doesn't believe, or like, I, who is it? Maybe it was Neil deGrasse Tyson. I can't remember who it was I was listening to this week. But somebody was talking so beautifully about how we're like stardust. And, you know, we're like, we're like this. And talking very beautifully about like the existence of life. And all I had to do was replace one word and slide God in there. We're talking about the same thing. Because we as creatures cannot help but worship. That song we sang, So Will I. Uh, uh, that, that is absolutely accurate. It doesn't matter who you are. At some point you're going to stop and you're going to look at the stars in the sky. And you're just going to say, wow. And you might call it Mother Nature or you might call it Yahweh. But you're going to worship God. And what we do as we replace God who tells us right for wrong, once we replace that with our own images, we always move into that something human, something created, because we have to worship something. Our eyes have to be drawn to something. And it brings us further and further and further away from the desires of God. This is the argument that Paul is laying out here. So he's trying to help the people to see. Because there are Jews and there are Gentiles who, who are at each other's throats. And he's trying to say, listen, y'all are sinners. All of you. And you're all in need of God's grace. 
You're all in need of repentance. You're all in need of saving. Keep his larger argument in mind. As we go to the controversial part of this text. The wrath of God is being revealed. And then in verse 26, we kind of come to the, the, big, the big piece of him actually calling forth um, iniquity. So in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring that which was honorable. So as we talked about last week, there is things about our, our being as humans. We are innately honorable. We are innately created. We are in the image of God. You are honorable and made for more. You are made for eternal life. You are made for heaven. You are made for God. But what we do as we move further away from God is we begin to dishonor that. As we forget that vision, we begin to dishonor ourselves. We begin to set aside those things and begin to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into sin because we exchange the truth of God in verse 25 with a a lie. We serve the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, controversial peace. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, um, the young man, I shouldn't say young, he's about as old as I am, but however old that kid is, uh, who uh, I mentioned earlier had a picture up there. His argument is to say that this is not talking about what we think of in our modern context as homosexuality or gay marriage or whatever. In fact, this is talking about disordered lust. These people are overly lustful, and God is, is, is condemning their over-lustfulness. And so we shouldn't be like that, but in terms of what we're talking about today as the LGBT movement, this has no application whatsoever, uh, and this is nonsense. Um, certainly it's true that we should not be overly lustful, uh, but clearly what Paul has in mind here is the action of homosexuality. He has in mind here Leviticus Leviticus is sort of tossed out. When's the last time you read Leviticus? Like, good Christian people. Some of you guys, are the last, except for you, weird. Some of the guys that I'm meeting with, right? Leviticus. I was, was it Mark? Who was I talking with? Where's Mark? I lost sight of you. Was it you and I that was talking about this? About how, how I love the uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and this. Yeah, the boring. And he goes, the boring parts. And I was like, yes, that's the part. I love those parts. I love those parts. Uh, Leviticus largely gets sort of set aside because there are elements of it that we don't, we don't keep. We don't keep four tassels on our cloak. I imagine some of you are wearing some sort of like polyester, some sort of shirt hybrid. We don't, we, we don't think anything about seeding our fields with two kinds of crops. And most of you have probably had bacon on something this week, right? So there are large swaths of the Old Testament that we don't pay any attention to, in the argument goes. I pay a lot of attention to it, actually. But, but how is it that we obey one thing but not the other thing? How is it that we keep one thing and not the other thing? So clearly we don't keep the one thing, so throw the whole thing out, except for, again, this is inconsistent. This is inconsistent. What we have to understand is about the Old Testament is that there are many pieces of the Old Testament that were designed to make Jews stand apart. Like, you just... We're supposed to be different. Four tassels, what does that do? Are they for dusting? No, obviously not, right? I mean, this is simply to say 
that's a, that's a Jew right there. How can I tell? Well, he's not ha- having bacon on his burger and he's got four tassels on his cloak. Like it was, we, can, we can recognize it right away. This is somebody who is set apart. And what they're supposed to see is, is these, these Jews also not trimming their beards. So my wife is... <laughs> a lot of beardless sinners in this room today. <laughs> What, what, what about, these are, these are meant to stand apart, to make the people holy, not holy in the sense of morally righteous, but holy in the sense of different. You have to understand, holy has two different meanings, right? And sometimes it means like purity, sometimes it means morally upstanding, and sometimes it means just different. In the New Testament, this is echoed over and over and over again. You're to be a holy people. In fact, Peter, as we quoted earlier, Peter brings us out. You are a holy people. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's own nation. Like You are bought with his blood. And Paul says that you're, you're bought at a price. You're no longer yours. You're holy. In what way are we holy? Now, we're holy not in the sense of, of tassels and all of these different ritualistic aspects, but we're holy in the sense of the moral life that is pictured within the Old Testament. What's so fascinating about these passages, if you want to write them down and read, I'm not going to read all of these passages, um, but there's a big, long list of sexual sins in Leviticus 18. And you know the only one we're arguing about is homosexuality. None of the other ones. Everyone else is fine. The rest are fine, 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 applicable, applicable. No, not that one. Applicable, applicable. That's inconsistent. It's inconsistent logic. Now, I know that, that we can't live just in the land of logic because many of you have friends and, and, and family even, um, as I do, uh, who wrestle with these issues. And so this isn't just a head thing. This is a heart thing as well as we talked about last week. Again, why last week's sermon is so important. But in terms of our heads, let's use them because what we see within Paul here is he is appealing to the Old Testament. He has in mind Leviticus. He has in mind the tradition of the Jews. He has in mind what what was right and what was wrong in terms of the Old Testament. So, what does this mean? This means that Paul is, is, and why why go here? Because if you, you know, sometimes Christians have been guilty of this, hammering this verse and forgetting all the other ones down here that we're all very guilty of. Envy, murder, hopefully not that one. Strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips. Holy, whoa, that's in your Bible, church folks, gossips, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient children, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of things that is being condemned here. And, and Paul is saying, listen, all of you, you, you Gentile folks, you are guilty of all of these things. And then he's going to come to the Jews and say, you're guilty of it too. But he's speaking here specifically. So why does he start with this, this sin here? Why is this one kind of the first salvo? It's the first salvo because it is the inversion of what we talked about last week. It is the inversion of God's desire for a man and a woman to be married, to have children, or for someone, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, for a a, a man or a woman to be singly devoted to God and to uh, proclaiming the gospel in singleness and in celibacy. And so what do we have in this text? We have a clear example, clear revealing of, of God's will and God's opposition to this kind of behavior. I want to turn to two more texts before we wrap it up here this morning. Um, and they're big ones, and so I want to give them both. And they're both very similar. And so I'll give you this one. I'll put it up, and, and, and we'll go back and forth. 
1 uh, Timothy 1, verses 8. I won't read this all, but you can see that this is a vice list. So we get here all of these things, people who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else. This is what we call a vice list, a list of things you shouldn't do. We also have virtue lists in the New Testament. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These, these are the things that you should have. Versus the vice list, which, is our things, which are the things you shouldn't have. 1 Corinthians is very similar to this. 1 Corinthians, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now here again, there's a big long list. Uh, the problem that, I, and the reason we're talking about this this morning is because we aren't really, nobody's really debating about idolaters, and really no one's debating about adulterers, and really no one's debating about drunkards or greeters. Greeters? The greeters are safe. I misspoke. <laughs> the greedy. Or slanderers. Or swindlers. <laughs> Where are they? Where are our greeters? There you are. Yeah, you guys are okay. Sorry. Except for you're sitting in the back, not in your usual spot. You messed me up. Uh, nobody is really arguing about this. These issues are like, oh, yeah, that's, that's bad. This is the contentious issue. And this should, again, point our eyes to what is, what is really the issue here? Is it, is it true biblical exegesis or is it cultural issues that we're beginning to bend toward the weight of culture? Because if this isn't, if this isn't, isn't true or good or whatever, then why are the rest of these True or good, or bad, as, a, as the case would be. The, there are three words that are being used here, and I want to draw attention to them because they are kind of the heart of some of the argumentation and some of the issues. Here, this. This we have neither the sexually immoral person, the, the, the Greek word here is pornea, which probably sounds familiar to you, pornography is where we get this word, and it's translated various ways. It essentially means sex outside of God's boundaries of marriage, so it can be Fornication, which happens before marriage, adultery, which happens after marriage, or kind of just the general gambit of sexual immorality. Uh, the second word, second word is malakoi, um, and this word means something means literally soft ones, something that is soft. So it often is referring to clothing, like soft clothing, fine clothing. So sometimes we'll translate, sometimes it gets translated as effeminate, sometimes it gets translated, here, here it was translated as male prostitutes. Um, essentially, what this means is somebody who is taking the passive role in a sexual relationship between two men. The passive role. The third word here is our sekinoitai. Uh, which means, which is a breakdown of two words. The first is male and the second is bed. Uh, and so what we have here then is, is a male who beds another male. Right? What you have to understand about the ancient world is this is actually really common. In the ancient world, uh, and this worked out really well for men, I guess, not so great for ladies, uh, but the man of the house, the patriarch, you've heard this word, Patriarch, patriarchy, kind of a real bad word these days. The patriarch, the, the head of the house, would have a wife. Everyone had a wife. Guess why? Children, right? Because you need a legitimate line. You need, you need a legitimate line of heirs to pass down your property or whatever, too. Your name, at least, too. But the man, after that, after that so this is really protected. The, the wife, his wife, and his children, his legitimate children, are very protected class. Guess what the man could do outside of that? Anything he wanted. 
And that meant all of this, right? All of this. So what we hear frequently today, and what I am hearing from from young Christians especially, frequently today as well, what happened in the ancient world is not the same as two men or two women who fall in love um, and want to buy a house in the suburbs and adopt some children. And that is absolutely 100% correct. Paul did not have in mind the suburbs, (laughs) right? I mean, he couldn't. How could he? Uh, What he had in mind was what he saw within his culture, and he is condemning this practice of a man who has more than one wife, more than often, there were, there were these, uh, what we would call pederastic or pedophilia almost relationships where you had a man who was very powerful uh, who would have slaves who would be male or male prostitutes and he would use his power to get what he wanted out of them. Your imagination and knowledge can fill in the rest. So what is being said by, uh, by people within churches that is being very confusing, it can be confusing if, this, if you haven't heard this then, Now you know and you're able to deal with this. But what is being said is what Paul is condemning then are these unequal uh, positions of power where men are using their power to get what they want sexually. And and that's, that's what Paul is condemning. Yes, Paul is absolutely condemning that. But that's not all Paul is condemning. I mean, clearly, Paul knew men who preferred men and women who preferred women. This is not a new thing. You think something new happens in earth? Like, we, we, we haven't figured out how to be immoral. And, like, I mean, like, the, like the, certainly there are some new things. But in terms of that, that's something that we know has existed for a long time. So certainly Paul is condemning that practice. But he's condemning everything that falls outside of that marriage relationship that we talked about last week. And you, if you're a Christian here today, especially if you're a young Christian here today, need to understand this truth. Because... There is false teaching that is going out. And it is wearing a Christian name. And it is saying that there are things that are okay that are not okay. It's saying that there are things that God loves that God does not love. Does God love people? And all of God's people said, yes. But what we have to understand, what makes us fundamentally different than the people that you'll engage with when you go to college or at your high school, is this. People have convoluted their minds so much so that they think that what they do is who they are. And men do this all the time with jobs, right? How much money I make is who I am. Women, what my children are like is who I am. Now, within sexual politics or identity politics, the fact that I'm gay is who I am. None of that is true. You are made in the image of God. You are for God. My identity is not in my fatherhood, not in my marriage, not in my ministry. My identity is in God. And any time I lose sight of that, I will instantly begin to corrupt the beauty of those other things. So we can say that God loves people, but he doesn't love what they do. God loves people, but he doesn't love what they practice. And if we are going to love what God loves and we're going to hate what God hates, we want to practice what God loves and we want to steer clear of what God hates and we want to speak the truth as much as we can to people without being abrasive, offensive jerks, which the church has frequently been guilty of. Because not everybody is interested in your opinion. Not not everyone is interested in the word of God. And you should share with those who want to hear, and you should love until they want to hear it. Does that make sense? 
So I wanted to speak very bluntly about these passages. I wanted to give you these Greek words. I wanted you to see them for yourselves. And I wanted you to hear the inadequacy of the arguments that are going forward today. Because they are going forward and forward and forward and forward. And we're not going to see the end of them anytime soon. But you need, as a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, to make sure that you don't fall into, especially men, this category at the top. We want to make sure that we are not buying into lies that are being given to us by society. We want to make sure that we are in line with what Jesus said, because what Jesus said is so beautiful and perfect. We really don't need anything more than what Jesus says here. Jesus has asked a a question about marriage. He's asked a question about sexuality. And he immediately goes back beyond Leviticus. Right? He skips all the way back. There are all kinds of places he could have stopped and talked. He could have stopped and condemned David, who we call a hero, for having multiple wives and concubines, which are little more than sex slaves. He could have condemned him. He could have done all these other things to say, well, that was wrong and that was bad and, and, and you know, all these different things, but he doesn't. He says, listen, let's go to the example that is positive. Let's go right to what God made. God made this. Made man and woman to leave their nuclear family and start new ones. And now that the end of the ages have come upon us, Paul says, if you're free to go and travel around and be a missionary, go travel around and be a missionary. And don't worry about getting married if you don't want to. But if you burn with passion, if you still have the desire for a wife or for a husband or for children, marry so that you do not, as he says, fall into sin. Um, That's the end of the second most awkward sermon I've ever preached. It is vitally important to me. I, I, I keep running into, I, I'm running in, I run into Christians, I run into di- Christians who are contemplating divorce, I run into Christians who are living together, I run into Christians who are, who are sleeping uh, around as it were, I run into Christians who are, who are caving in on this LGBT issue. And to all of them, and to all of us in the room, Paul says to all of us, he says, you are all in need, all in need of salvation. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is to take away sin. It's to take away the things that, that we, we give ourselves over to. And, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about something in terms of sexual immorality or we're talking about something like gossiping in the church, which is far more deadly. I've watched that kill way more churches and destroy way more marriages and kill way more lives. Bitterness, envy, deceit, hating and being hated. In Ephesians, he says, that's who we were. We were once people who did that. That's what we were all about, ourselves. Like a collapsed, dying star, just focused on what we are and what we want and our own passions and our own desires. And whether it's this or it's something else, we're all in the same boat. We need light. We need salvation. You and I need peace with God. And that peace with God is offered to us through Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, has nothing to do with with anything in your past. Jesus calls you today. He calls you today. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, and I'll kind of leave us with this word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we can have peace with God. We don't need to worry about our 
salvation or our broken hearts or our past shame because God can perfectly give you peace. Not God will perfectly take all your problems away. Not God will tame all your passions in an afternoon. But you can have peace with God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners of whatever stripe, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now are we reconciled to rejoice in the life we have been given in his name. This morning, I'd call you to seek that with everything you are and everything you have because nothing else matters, only this. Let's stand as we sing a last song of praise to our God.